you know, I've been around a long time. I know how hard this is. From the political science department at UW-Madison. Am I exasperated? Absolutely, I'm exasperated. I'm Adam Wigger. This country's gone through tough times before, and we're going to do it again. And I'm Sam Beisman. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. And this is 1050 Basketball. Today on 1050 Bascom, we are privileged to have the opportunity to talk to Roger Ervin, who received his MBA from the University of Wisconsin Business School and teaches courses at the School of Public Affairs. Roger is a very accomplished global operating executive with experience in the public and private sectors. His career has spanned from working as a campaign field organizer to the highest levels of presidential politics and diplomatic service to serving as the CEO of a 5,000-employee global company operating in 40 countries. Roger worked for a time as a senior staffer on Capitol Hill and served as Secretary of Revenue for the state of Wisconsin. Roger was also a senior advisor to the Biden 2020 presidential campaign and served in the Clinton administration as a senior advisor in the Africa Bureau of the State Department, where he was deeply involved in some of the most crucial foreign policy matters of the time, including helping Nelson Mandela's rise to the presidency, as well as resolving America's intervention in Somalia and ending genocide in Rwanda. In May 2021, Roger joined Putnam Partners as a firm partner. Next spring, he will teach a course called Strategic Public Management. We are grateful to Roger for taking time out of his incredibly busy schedule to talk about his career in politics and business. Oh, you're welcome. I'm looking forward to a robust conversation. So let's just start broadly, if you will, and kind of talk about your start in terms of your background and choosing your college path when you were at Tulane, where you did your undergraduate major in biology. Is that right? Uh, Yes, it is, more or less. I actually, my major is actually biochemistry, and I had a minor in classical history, but in my last year, I realized that wasn't my path. I wasn't going to, you know, enter the science uh, market. I settled for a biology degree and still had a minor in classics and went straight into the workforce. So those things happened in in, in school, and, you know, at one point, there was a statistic, 70% of the people who graduate from college don't use their major at all. So I guess I'm probably one of those. And what was that first job out of college for you? And then how did that lead to so many different interesting positions that you've had since then? Okay. Well, I I was uh, recruited to work in the private sector. I had accepted the job and I took a detour to Arkansas for a wedding. At that wedding, I met Bill Clinton's political director. She was the she was the mother of one of my fraternity brothers. She asked me why I was going into this sector. And I told her, well, I said, you know, I've sort of been studying this in school. And I think that's the this is probably the right path for me. And it was really kind of a sales job. And she said, Well, look, I think you have a real career in politics, would you be interested in going to Washington and interviewing with a friend of mine who's a young senator who's just become chairman of the Judiciary Committee? I said, wow, you know, I, I, I'm from kind of a you know, poor family, so I don't, I don't know any senators. <laughs> so I went to Washington and interviewed and took a job with Joe Biden, and that's where I started uh, my career. And you've, you've done a lot. Yeah, <laughs> I guess... Every four years, I seem to take a new job. So I don't know whether that's I can't keep a job or, or, or I just find new adventures. 
Yeah. And speaking of which, do you have any advice to students and alumni who see your career and want to figure out how to pursue some of the things you've done? Well, you know, truthfully, I had no idea what I was doing when I was leaving college and entering the workforce professionally. Um, and I think that was probably a majority of the people in my day. Back then, internships weren't really readily available. So most of us just worked in the summer, worked during school and worked during holidays and just hoped at some point when we had a degree that we would fall into a job, you know, unless you were going to professional, you know, degrees like medicine or, or law, you just, you know, you just hope to get a job when you got out. So I wasn't sure what it meant to be working a professional job. Luckily for me, I landed in a place that provided a crucible for on-job training, uh, working in the Senate for a senator who thought he was going places fast and couldn't wait to get there. There was real pressure to succeed. You know, as you all know now, life threw him curves, uh, curveballs, and he didn't have a straight trajectory to the presidency. And so Joe, like the rest of us, had to do what most people do, find alternatives to reach our goals. The, I left the Senate after three years and went to the House and worked there for another three or four years. And then when Bill Clinton became president through a lot of weird ways, I, I uh, wound up going to work for him. That sort of gave me a good foundation of what I would do in the, in the future. And speaking of that good foundation, how would you advise a new or recent graduate to think about their early career positions? Do you have a, any reflections on what you did that you could pull advice from or maybe choosing whether to pursue employment or another degree? Well, I, I would say, uh, I mean, for me, I went to business school in my 40s. And I probably, you know, and I had kids and I had a stressful job and I probably wouldn't recommend most people do that. But, you know, a lot of people do. That's why they have, you know, programs for, for more experienced people. I would say that the timing was right for me. I had been interested in, and uh, talked to and recruited by a couple of business schools on the East Coast before I moved to Madison. And it really didn't seem right for me to go to another private school for my advanced education. So when I came to Madison, the, the, the choice was obvious. There's a public university education here in Wisconsin. The mission was great. The history was great. And the quality instruction and research was fantastic. So it, it was the right thing for me. And I would say that it really depends on who you are, whether you go to grad school or not. Some people know that they want to do that and they're eager about it and they go to, straight to grad school from undergrad. Others take time like me, you know, plan your future out and then you decide to go back and you go back. But for the most part, whoever you are, if you need to go back to grad school, you should go. A lot of people, you know, in engineering, maybe nursing, those kind of professions that you get a professional degree right out of undergrad. Maybe it doesn't make sense. But for most people, I think it's a good thing. I think it, it's a capstone on your career. It refines you as a professional. You learn a lot. And my, my feeling has always been that if you really want to succeed in life, and I don't mean just in terms of a career or business, it's important that you become a life learner, whether that's going to graduate school or just finding ways to maintain your ability to do research, to read, to improve yourself. Personally, I, I think it's critical 
to, to be a self-improver constantly. And, you know, I guess I, I kind of wrote down a few things that I think are important for your career. And, and it includes uh, obviously grad school and, you know, lifetime learning. Um, I think you really have to prepare yourself. You need to find ways to excel. You, you move up the ladder. You give back to your community. People don't understand that a career is, is about lifelong bridge building, creating networks with people that you know, that know your work, that will vouch for you no matter what the situation is. Real affirmation is earned, it's not given. Affirmation like that is not something you're going to get on LinkedIn or Twitter or Facebook. It's intrapersonal validation. Putnam Partners, as I mentioned earlier, is a good bridge for me because that's somebody I worked with at, uh, at, with Senator Biden 35 years ago, and we've kept in touch and I know about his career, he knows about my career. So when Putnam Partners uh, opportunity came up, which is where I work now, um, I joined as a partner and, uh, you know, in this case, I lean on my network and my network leans on me. Well, that is a perfect transition into our next question that we were going to ask you anyways. As you were saying, you did work for Joe Biden when he was a senator, and then you have continued to work in high-level politics and were a senior advisor to his recent campaign for president. And for those of us who might not travel in these circles, could you give us some insight into what maintaining those relationships over such a long period of time looks like or what those steps might be? You know, I mean, obviously there's the, there's the close interpersonal relationships that you have, but with a lot of people, I don't have those. I, you know, you'll find ways uh, in professional life through associations and, and whatnot to continue to have, you know, relation, you know, build relationships with people and build those linkages. Uh, I would say that you just need to make it a priority. People do that. They, you know, people join business associations. They make it work for themselves. They keep in touch with people more than just sort of online. You make, you make time to, to do that. You, you know, find ways to either publish, you know, yourself somehow uh, so that people can follow you. You help people. Uh, when people are in the market and they're looking for jobs, I know that those people do well. I really take time out to help them build out their network, help them communicate, uh, you know, connect with others and help them get to their next job. And, you know, then at times they do the same with me. It's, it's more or less what you do in college, but you sort of keep that up and you, you build that network out. But like I said, the basis of that, if you really, really want to be successful at not only at business, but successful at bridge building is yourself, improve yourself, do a good job where you are and let people know that that you did, you know, so it's pretty obvious, but a lot of people forget about that. They get, you know, caught up in their daily lives and they, they forget that, you know, that it's important that people know what you're doing and that you do, a, that you do good work where you are. After working for the House of Representatives, where you served on the Banking and Foreign Affairs Committee, you went to the State Department where you were a senior advisor in the African Bureau during an incredibly tumultuous time on the continent. Your time there coincided with civil wars in Angola, Somalia, Rwanda, and Nelson Mandela's presidential election in South Africa. So that's a lot. Yes. Can you maybe give us some insight in how you pivot from Senate Hill staffer to House of Representatives senior advisor to the State Department work in Africa? Sure, sure. When I was on the Hill, I was only on the Hill for six years. There was a lot going on on the Hill in those days, in the late 80s and early 90s. 
And, you know, as I said earlier, I made it my job to not only do a good job for my boss, but to help my, to improve myself. So I, I really knew the process, the legislative process. I stayed late at night. I worked uh, a lot of hours. I learned, I, I did research, you know, on the side. I, I got involved with things. I became very creative at uh, helping my, whoever I was working for, uh, develop legislation and pass legislation. And then when you do that, you get to take bills to the floor and you learn, you know, parliamentary procedures very well. And that pays off because people think they know that they can rely on you and uh, you get more opportunities. And so I was working for a member, a great guy from, uh, from, from New York, a House member on, on his subcommittee. And um, he died in office in August of 92. And because I had, you know, I'd worked with a lot of people who are now working for President Clinton, they, they uh, recruited me to come work on the campaign. And so I had a very odd job. My job was, wake, this is before really internet, before, you know, barely using email at this point. My job was to wake up at three in the morning, uh, go to all the warehouses around town and grab uh, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, and boil everything down to three pages of talking points that uh, had to be facts because didn't really have email in those days, facts to, um, to Arkansas, uh, because I was working in the war room in Washington, not in, not in Arkansas. It was facts to Arkansas every day at six o'clock in the morning. And they would, uh, the press people and uh, would go out, push those talking points and the candidates would do it as well. And so we were, we were kind of ahead of the game. It was something that really hadn't been done like that before. That made a difference. But if I hadn't had the experience and the, and the reputation on the Hill, I wouldn't have been offered that job. And so I was offered a job at the National Security Council under Tony Lake at first. And, but I didn't want to work in the White House because I'd already been a staffer for a member of the Senate and a member of uh, several members of the House. And I knew it would just be the same thing, writing memos. And, you know, you know how many people, you know, don't turn down an opportunity to work at the White House, but I did. And I went to work at the State Department because I wanted to know what it was like in, to work in real operations. I thought that was important for where I was at the time. And so I went to work as a senior advisor, which was just a, another name for a, a position that wasn't one of the four manager jobs. So it was sort of this political position, but it was really became really became more operational after I proved myself to the rank and file there at the State Department. I became a senior advisor to the Assistant Secretary for Africa and. In that job, I had responsibilities for relations with the intelligence community, operations and personnel inside, uh, inside the, the, the bureau, and then uh, congressional relations as needed. But I really wound up being more in operations than anything else. And so for four years, I was pretty much on the road most of the time. After two weeks in the job, I was in Somalia, in Mogadishu. And uh, stayed, you know, going back and forth uh, there for um, for the first year in office. And you know, sometimes personality um, trait of a president can work its way into policy. And Bill Clinton's 
biggest weakness in the 92 election was his knowledge of foreign policy. And, you know, George Bush and had, you know, he had been a, he had been ambassador to China. He had been a director of the CIA. So that was his, that was his forte. And, um, but the election was really about domestic policy. So Clinton was able to get elected on that, but it was known, I think. And, and I think that he showed it at an inferiority complex about foreign policy. So they were making really bad decisions. We made poor decisions in Somalia, which led to the death of 17 Rangers. We pulled out of Somalia after that, uh, and there was nobody, nobody in Somalia who had been responsible for those deaths uh, paid a price. And people knew we were weak. And after running out of Somalia, you know, Rwanda happened. We were not willing to mesh ourselves into the the, the genocide until far later, until, until most most of those people were dead. We had a bad taste in our mouth after Somalia. So we had to reorganize and understand that where U.S. policy was related to Africa, where U.S. policy was related to Russia, and this is only a few, two or three years after the fall of the Berlin Wall, so the Russians were still, you know, prevalent in places like Angola and Mozambique and other places. We had to deal with, you know, the the Qaddafis and all of those dictators that still existed. And even though we worked, uh, and you're probably thinking, well, he, that's Middle East, but uh, Gaddafi and, and some of the others, uh, uh, Mubarak and others, uh, you know, in Northern Africa were playing huge roles in providing weapons or, you know, having, having leverage uh, in, in Southern Africa. So it was, um, it, was a, it was a stressful time because we were still dealing with the transition uh, from the, you know, from the Cold War, many states were feeling their oats, but they still had dictators and those dictators were really um, trying to maintain hold as we were pushing democracy. And then we really had to figure out a way to work with, with the nations of Africa, all 55 uh, countries to integrate into the global economy. And so, so there was a lot of things going on. Um, I mean, you know, uh, we talked about some of those, uh, Rwanda, Mandela, but there was a really long 30-year war in Angola that was horrible. Um, there was a 25-year war going on in Mozambique that was trying to end, and it was a brutal, brutal war where, where mass casualties of people. It was the beginning of the war fueled by diamonds, oil, and other resources in Liberia, in Sierra Leone, places you, you know about now. So it was, it was a challenging time. It was a learning time, but it was a time that you had to be committed to making things change. And the administration eventually came around and we found our sea legs and we got some good things done, but it was, it was, it was stressful and it was a challenge. And I learned a lot. I learned, I would say, what did I learn the most in that job was that policy is one thing and human life is another. And just because you can leverage yourself, you know, to push a policy like democracy, you need to realize that the, the toll could be human life. Or if you decide to not engage that the whole the toll could be human life, like in Rwanda. I also just have a personal follow-up question, I guess, to that super interesting trajectory that you just talked about. But do you think think that the 
sort of policy of less intervention that happened in Rwanda and some subsequent atrocity situations was a result of the US feeling scared after the situation in Somalia? Or do you think it's much more dependent just on the administration itself? And have you seen it change a lot over time? I think Clinton's personal insecurity about foreign policy led to other people making decisions and not the president making as many decisions as he should have about what we did. I would say that, and, and this is in books now, I would say that we, the military in Somalia was still operating like it was Vietnam. And that was, you know, there were a lot of things wrong with that. Um, and, and they learned lessons, but it took a long time for them to, to figure out how they operated in those places. And I mean, you can just, you can probably argue that Afghanistan and Iraq were probably not as successful as they should have been, but there's a hangover there, I think, from what happened earlier uh, in places like Somalia and Haiti. I would say that our team eventually figured out how to work together, but they weren't working together at first well. And so it was really, you know, like after Somalia, for example, I mean, there were like a lot of recriminations about who made the decision not to bring in armored vehicles and, you know, all those kinds of things. So, so the team wasn't really working together. They'd learned to work together better, but there were some really endemic problems in Africa that we just didn't have the capability at the time to deal with in the correct way. As it relates to now, I still think interventions are important, but you, you have to be in for the long term and you have to have a plan. You know, the plan has shifted dramatically in Afghanistan and we're now pulling out. And I think it's the right thing to do, but a lot of people lost lives, both on the Afghani side and the US side. For what now? Because the Taliban may take over. So I think we have to have a long-term plan. You know, we were in Germany for 50 or 60 years, you know, after World War II. I mean, we have to make those kind of investments in any place we, we intervene in and to help them transition. Otherwise, don't do it at all because it'll just be a waste of life and a waste of time. A good point to make. The long-term exit strategy is something that many of my professors talk about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You just have to, you know, you have to make a long term because it takes people forever to decide that this is the path. Democracy is hard. We didn't figure democracy out. We had another, we had, we had really two, two wars after, you know, the constitution was ratified, uh, the war of 1812, a foreign war, and then we had the civil war. And those were because, you know, we just hadn't really landed on where we wanted to be as a country. And so it, uh, it takes a long, long time for nations to evolve and to get to a point where they can be stable, de demo stable democracies with great economies. And if you sort of cut and run, um, you're going to get the best results. So for me, that's, that's sort of my analysis. And but as we've seen in, in the situations, but clearly, you know, when I was, uh, when I was a CEO of Bluemont, we were the largest, we were the largest government contractor in Syria. We ran all of the refugee camps. We ran the camps that had ISIS families and troops in it. Uh, we had, um, we ran, uh, we ran food through most of the, the country. And, and I think for a time we were really making progress. And then, you know, President Trump came in and they had, you know, it's a new administration and they had their own goals. And, 
they began to pull out and I don't think it was the right time to pull out. And then, so all of our progress collapsed. And here we are with sort of a, a state that now we have the Russians back in the Middle East after being out for so long, um, a lot of chaos with uh, Assad and uh, what, what's going on in the, um, in the Western side of the state. And, you know, uh, nothing's really resolved there. We're wondering if we could ask what your take might be on the current tumultuous politics in the U.S. Because sure. some, there are some people that kind of casually toss around the suggestion that a civil war is coming for the United States. And especially after the January 6th insurrection um, and the aftermath of that event. And so as someone who has seen civil war in tumultuous countries up front, what are your thoughts on that suggestion? Uh, you know, I, I, I'm more hopeful. I don't see that happening, but I will say it is not out of the realm of possibility for something for us to have significant domestic violence, because, you know, the reality is, is that it matters what people say. And give you a good example. In Rwanda, there was a radio station called Radio Mill Colleen that was for years, but definitely as it led up to the start of the genocide, um, they were spewing hate speech all over the place, making people start to become very suspicious of their neighbors, suspicious of their, their spouses. It was crazy, you know, because you had people who were living next to each other who were related, their daughters, sons were, were, were married, but one was a Hutu, one was a Tutsi. And it got to such a, you know, a critical point that people went out with a machete and killed their next door neighbor who was their relative. So, you know, it does matter what you say and how you say it. And so uh, I think that we have some dangerous currents going on, cross currents going on in this country. But I do, I am hopeful that that people um, will be more level headed and understand that the, the country is better off uh, if we look for reconciliation than uh, continue to um, to be at least at least on the surface divided. Uh, I don't know that no matter what people say, I think a lot of people were shaken up about um, January 6th. And so I think there are people who are, uh, who are looking for ways to, to create bridges among people, but, but there's still a lot of people who are trying to take advantage of the situation as well. As you mentioned earlier, when you were done at the State Department, you made a pivot to work at an international consulting firm. What inspired that choice? You know, I've always had an interest in business, even though I had been in policy and, and been in government. And uh, I learned what happened was I was uh, after I left the State Department, I was recruited to work for the African Development Bank. And that's one of the World Bank's umbrella organizations. And they they were right in the middle of what was then called the Asian contagion, which was a which was a currency crisis. Um, that was that really impacted worldwide and and the African Development Bank was they were holding too many uh, Japanese yen and the yen uh, devalued their asset base had crashed and so they were looking for uh, help for a lot of in a lot of different ways so they asked me to come in to help deal with the rating agencies in New York City uh, to deal with uh, the 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 G7 um, governments to try to get them to 
uh, work with them to um, put more money into the bank to stabilize the bank so that they could sort of, you know, change currency, uh, the, the currency basis. And um, so that's what I did. And I ran that office for two years and it was great. And the crisis um, resolved itself. And I was going to stay working for the bank and a guy named Bill Daly, who was secretary of commerce under, under uh, Bill Clinton, asked me to come back to, into government to help them with, uh, with their Africa operations because the commerce department's Africa operations had really, I don't know, it just sort of crashed. And so I sort of came back in as yet again, I mean, it was sort of African Development Bank, the State Department, African Development Bank, and now back at the Commerce Department. So I went to uh, Johannesburg and ran the U.S. Foreign Commercial Service for Africa out of Johannesburg and sort of helped them stabilize and, and reorganize that. So you have like three situations where I'd become a problem solver. So when the Bush administration came in, I resigned and went back to the U.S. and thought, oh, I'm going to try to see if I can if I can monetize this problem solving skill that I have. And so I created this organization and did pretty well and eventually uh, went to work. Uh, it got uh, uh, subsumed by uh, Foley and Lardner and I went to work to work for Foley and Lardner and moved to Madison. But after that acquisition and that move, you switched again and you went to work for the Wisconsin Department of Revenue. Is that correct? <laughs> oh, uh, uh, you know, uh, I was lucky enough that Governor Doyle asked me to come in and and work in the in his administration when he when he was first elected. But I had just been in government and I just wanted to stay at Foley and Lardner for a while. So after being there about five years, he was reelected and asked me to come in uh, to the government. And it seemed like after looking at who was where and everything that the revenue department seemed like a really good fit for me. And so uh, I went to work there for four years. And I have to say it was one of the best jobs I ever had. It was, people were smart, um, they were dedicated, uh, the issues were, you know, were, were critical to helping the economy stable, especially uh, during the 08 crisis, uh, economic crisis. We were in a transition period from paper to digital, and we made that successful, and people rallied together, and we, we were able to really modernized the department in a way in which few, even the IRS had not gone to yet. And it was great. It was, we had, we all worked together. We, you know, it, the, the interesting thing was, it was what, before I took the job, after I'd taken the job, before I started, there was, um, there was a miscommunication between uh, the department and a printer and the, about transfer of files to to print out forms that go to you know to people's houses at the time that went into their mailbox and it was it was a way that you know instead of having people go into libraries or whatever we would just mail the forms out ahead of you know ahead of the tax year and then people were able to uh you know fill out their forms and file their taxes well the um forms were printed with social security numbers on the front of the form and we put in people went through the mail and put in people's mailboxes. So it was one of the largest data breaches. I came in at the at the start of that process and sort of helped them transition to that. So my my fixer, my my reputation as a fixer actually helped me again in this situation. But we were able to, you know, resolve everything, and then uh, and and get rebuild the confidence in both the legislature and in the community. 
in the state. And then we decided that why waste uh, a crisis? Let's take advantage of that to reassess how this department is actually running. And so we, through a long process that I won't bore you with, we were able to take six teams, redesign the entire apartment the way it was, the apartment the way it should be run in the digital age. And we were able to eliminate paper. We eliminate paper files. We had warehouses and warehouses of paper files. We digitized all of that. We redid the way that our um, call center worked and we got people to electronic files. So we went from 20% of the population doing uh, filing electronically to 80%. 100% of all businesses filed electronically. We were able to cut our operating costs from, I think it was about 180 million at the time. We cut it all the way down to 120 million. So we were able to provide 60 million back to the state in operational costs. So it was a really, it was a great experience without really hurting employees. I mean, we, you know, we just took advantage of when employees retired and then just didn't fill those spots and then re redesign the spot. So it was a great management um, experience. Um, uh, and uh, for me, it really, really gave me a, a better understanding of state government, what state government can do. And I relish to see how, what they do next. And, and I, I enjoyed my time there and it was, it was a great experience. That's fascinating. It seems like every position you've been in has been some like monumental change challenge situation. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly has. You know, the, the thing is that I've been lucky at most places. I work with really good people and been able to uh, both as a leader and, and as an employee um, uh, work to work together to find, uh, to develop the right kinds of strategies to work. And when it didn't, when the strategies didn't work, we were able to re reassess and redesign and, and, and remobilize and, and, um, and, and, and have a, you know, create a successful um, outcome. And so after working at the Department of Revenue, you became the CEO of Bluemont, is that correct, in 2015? Well, I was I was a vice president at a at a, a defense contracting uh, NGO. It's which a, a not for profit called LMI. It used to stand for Logistics Management Institute. It actually was started by Robert McNamara when he became Secretary of Defense, and you know under under Kennedy because the 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 Defense Department didn't really have a logistics. Um, didn't have modernized logistics like Ford Motor Company, where McNamara came from. So we, he started LMI, and, and by the time I got there, they were doing a lot of different things. And so I was the uh, I was the head of uh, global operations, global sales for them, and uh, and a VP of one of the business, other business units. So I was there for about three and a half years before I was recruited to go to IRD, which then became Bluemont, and um, I was there I was there for five years under actually another tumultuous uh, situation that we were able to rectify, but it was it had, had some bad times. And what were those kind of challenges in that position? And would you be able to tell us a little bit about the organization and the work that you did at Bluemont? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it was, it's an amazing organization. IRD had grown from a very mom and pop shop um, contractor for USAID, it was International Development, 
and it grew to be the largest to second largest uh, um, uh, NGO in the development space. And when um, an organization called the American Academy for, for Educational Development, I think it's called AED, when they um, were disbanded for uh, some um, breaking some contract rules, then IRD became the largest NGO in the space. Um, I took over as the some of these some of the war as as Iraq we were pulling out of Iraq and so the, some of the, those opportunities deflated and they were it was about six hundred million dollars or so when I when I a year uh, in revenue when I took over and uh, um, uh, they had had some prom problems that the government thought were similar to AEDs. And they were, there was an investigation going on, but the board had, had assured me that those things were over and we were on the right track. Well, a month after I got there, the government suspended IRD from business. <laughs> and so yet again, I was thrust into a situation that was uh, very uh, stressful and, and, uh, and needed, you know, needed some leadership towards uh, a, a change environment. And so really for the, for those five years I was there, it was all about change. We were actually, we couldn't come to agreement after six months of what the government wanted and what we wanted to do. So we decided to take the government to court and we won a landmark case in federal court against the government. And actually that case is now taught to contracting officers in the US government because it was so unusual. And so the, the, the judge ruled that we should be put back in business and um, allowed to operate. And so we, we decided that, uh, that the, the name IRD had been so damaged that the brand was not really what it used to be. So we changed the name to Bluemont. We moved some, some of our operations here to Madison and we changed the name to, to Bluemont, which was really sort of a, a hybrid of Blue Mounds uh, out here by Dodgeville. And, uh, it was really meant to be, you know, about, about reaching peaks and, and creating transparency and having, having a good, um, a good idea of where we would, as a contractor for the government would take those contracts. And so, um, we, we really made a, an effort to be transparent. Again, we went digital. Uh, we, um, we focused more instead of being really all over the place like IRD was. We focused on refugees and food programs. We focused on engineering and engineering related to water uh, in particular. And, uh, and then, we, uh, then we had other programs that were sort of community service programs. And, and so we were the largest USAID contractor in the West Bank, Philippines, Afghanistan, Colombia, many places in Africa where we, we provided water for people, we provided food for people, we provided education for people and job training. And uh, it was a great experience, but you know, the, we had a stressful start, but we got through that. And now Bluemont is, is still in business. We, we reorganized the business and cut some parts of it off. So we, we shrank a lot because we just didn't think we should do some of those things anymore, but it wasn't ever about money. It was about what we were doing for people. We wanted to be more focused on that. And that's kind of where the story ended. And after five years, it was a really tough job to wake up every morning and, and wonder, you know, who got killed in Afghanistan today or what happened in Syria. And, 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 you know, you probably remember when Trump wanted to pull out of Syria, um, the Turks came across the border and, and attacked 
parts of uh, eastern Syria, and um, they some of the refugee camps that we uh, that we were running were burnt down to the ground. Uh, so you know it was that kind of thing all, all the time. And I think most CEOs in, in the U.S. now of larger organizations probably only last eighteen months to two years. And I was there five years. When I started there, I had gray, uh, had black hair. And now, <laughs> as you can see, it's pretty gray. So I decided that uh, I needed some time off to, to think about what I was going to do next. And I took a year off until, uh, until my friend offered me a job uh, as a partner at Putnam Partners. Finally, we're a bit closer to the present with your work at Putnam Partners. If you'd like, we would love to hear more about your work with that organization. Thank you. It was, um, it is a, it is a, a, a very interesting organization. It is an ad firm. It is a lot like what was the show on, uh, on Netflix? The, 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 I forgot the, the name of the, the show now, but, uh, it's, it, they do advertising. They do advertising for political candidates, for companies, causes, you know, uh, for not-for-profits. And, uh, and then they also do advising. And so I will spend most of my time working on corporate work. So, you know, if, if a corporation gets in trouble or they want to sort of change their position in the community, then we go in and we will help them, you know, provide expertise in um, what they need to do in terms of positioning themselves within the, the public or within the customer base as necessary. So, so it's a very, very different than anything I've ever done before. I would say it's probably more creative than running an organization. And um, I, I kind of thought it would be a good way for me to finish my career. Absolutely. We want to make sure we're getting to the end of our time here, but you're teaching a course or two this coming school year. Is that right? Yep. Uh, in the fall, I'll be teaching a course on leadership, which is barely, uh, we haven't talked about it yet, but I, I taught for 10 years at the business school. And that course was a leadership course. It was sort of, Leadership, communication, sort of all of those things thrown in. Speaking to uh, La Follette, I thought, uh, you know, I'd like to offer those skills to, you know, people who are interested in public sector. And so we, we, uh, they, they, we talked and decided that we should do two courses. So in the spring and the fall, I'll do a course called leadership. And in the spring, I'll do a course called uh, strategic management in the public sector. I guess we're nearing the end, but what's something we didn't talk about that we should mm. have? Well, I think one thing, one thing that I would, if I were going to give advice to people, and I do often, I would say a couple of things. One, got to have a plan. Even if that plan changes, you always have to have a plan. Number one, I think I talked about this at the beginning, you know, whatever industry or career path you take, Build your knowledge base. If you're knowledgeable, you will always have a job. Secondly, accomplish success within your sphere of influence. You know, if you're in a, in a group, be successful in that group. If you're at a company and you have more latitude than outside of your group, try to be successful in that. But you do that with grace, understanding, and camaraderie. You need to understand market dynamics and organizational dynamics within your reach. How does the group work? How does the company work? You know, can, can I take a mentorship somewhere? How, how can I learn more about my path to success? Don't be afraid to take to promotion, but if you take a promotion, you better be successful at it. So don't get over your head, in other words. My 
<laughs> my number one piece of advice is always have plan A, B, C, and D in your head <laughs> and be ready to execute those at any time. Don't be afraid to fail. But when you do fail, admit it, find out how to improve, and don't try not to make the same mistake again. And lastly, when you are successful, be gracious in your success, be loyal to your networks and your seniority, you know, whoever's in, above you, and find ways to always be a lifelong learner. So as an individual, I would say that's, that's my advice. I would say just generally to people who are coming out of school, it's scary coming out of school. You don't really know what it's like. Even if you have an internship, it's very different than when you're, you know, you're actually hired. Uh, but you got to jump in, jump in with confidence, be humble uh, about um, how you start and work hard. It's not most jobs, if you want to be successful, are not 40-hour week jobs. They're 50 or 60-hour week jobs. And it may be 40 working, but the other 10 or 15 or 20 is learning. And if you do that early, I think you can be very successful at what you do, whether it's going back to graduate school or just you know being a lifelong learner uh, in your advocation or your vocation. There's a lot there. Thank you. Our final question we have for you today is something we've been asking all of our guests because it's been a very long and at times very dark and stressful year or a year and a half at this point. And so we're wondering what is one thing that makes you hopeful? Eden, that's a very good question. I'd love to know what other people said. Uh, for me, I'm hopeful by the way we ended the pandemic. This was and we talked about challenges at different places I work, but this was this was monumental, global scale, um, just just an unbelievable experience for all of us. And it was hard. Luckily, a lot of people kept their jobs, and uh, the economy is now you know rebounding. And the people who didn't have who lost their jobs, hopefully, are finding jobs now, and we can get back to normal. But it was a trying experience for all of us. I'm hopeful because we've, we've come out of this without killing each other, really. I mean, we, you know, it was, you know, I mean, January 6th probably happened a lot because of the pandemic. So I think, we, I think we've rallied. I think we stayed safe. I think we'll get, hopefully we'll get back to respecting each other and we'll do okay. But we all have to realize that we're human. A lot of things happened that weren't great. And we need to learn from this. And, you know, I think at the end of the day, and I don't really want to end this by being political, but we cannot afford to have people in office, no matter which party it is, looking to divide us. And that's what the voting booth is about. We want people that can be in leadership roles that unite us. And so I'm hopeful that in the next you know, next election and one after that, we'll continue to make that a priority and people will rally around the flag for the right reasons and not the wrong reasons. Well, that is a fantastic way to end 
what has been a great conversation. We want to say thank you so much again for talking with us today. This has been wonderful. Thank you. I enjoyed it. You both are very talented and uh, obviously people who are going to go places. And I, I really enjoyed meeting you. For more information about 1050 Bascom, visit polysci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Adam Wigger and Sam Beisman, produced by Amy Gangle and recorded remotely for now.